Good morning, everybody. It's Steph. Hope you're doing well. As you can see, we have a lovely freezing rain this morning in Canada. So uh, it seems relatively likely that we shall have a little bit of time to chat this morning. So I thought I'd pick a nice juicy topic which will allow for a rather far-ranging discussion, but one I think which will be quite fruitful. For those of us who are laboring under theological societies, or increasingly theological societies, so that we can understand a little bit about the success of uh, religion, and I'm going to particularly talk about uh, Christianity in this uh, context, uh, it's just the one I happen to be most familiar with, and the one that I can pull the most examples from, uh, having read through the Bible in its entirety when I worked as a gold panner up north when I was 19, so... Um, I have that, uh, I've had that privilege, I guess you could say. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the two-facedness, I guess you could say, of the Bible, and why it, uh, why it came about that way, and why, wh how that has contributed to its success. Now, Luther pointed out something very interesting. Uh, this is Martin Luther, the original, not the king. Um, the Martin Luther was the, um, the monk, the German monk from Wittgenstein, who nailed up his famous 93 Theses on the church door, uh, who was highly opposed to the practice of what were called indulgences, or the sale of the excess virtue of Jesus and the saints to mere mortal sinners, so that you could have your funsies and uh, go and kill people, or have uh, sex with a mistress, or whatever, and not worry about it affecting your eternal salvation, because you could uh, simply purchase the excess virtue that was left over from... I mean, Jesus obviously was much more good than he needed to be to get into heaven, and the church managed to hang on to all that excess virtue and could sell it to you for a very good price. And Luther was not such a big fan of that and many other things within the church. And so he um, founded uh, Protestantism, which then split into Anabaptism, Zwingelianism, Zwingelianism Calvinism, and resulted in some uh, pretty horrendous crimes uh, and murders and a hundred years of religious wars throughout Europe until people got sick of it and decided to separate the church and the state. It's amazing how much blood has to flow before people will do the right thing. But um, oh, Anabaptists who believe in adult baptism had the charming practice in Germany and in other places throughout Europe of people saying, oh, so you believe in adult baptism, do you? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to drown you as an adult, and that's the punishment because you believe in adult baptism, which is wrong. So as an adult, we are going to drown you. And this was uh, how these uh, lovely Christians resolved their disputes. And really, uh, it's not particularly their fault those who were brought up in the bigotry, sorry, the faith, I don't know why I use synonyms so much, but um, uh, that's really the only way you can resolve disputes, when you have the eternal soul as your stake, but you, uh, you, there's really no other way for people to be able to resolve disputes than, than that. But he wrote a wonderful passage, and he was actually a very good writer in my opinion, he wrote a wonderful passage explaining the difference between an eye for an eye and turn the other cheek. An eye for an eye and turn the other cheek is one of the most famous contradictory Bible 
commandments or instructions or moral rules. And he wrote, and I've mentioned this before, I mean, a couple hundred podcasts ago, so I'll keep it brief. But he mentioned that, or he wrote that, the way to solve this seeming paradox of an eye for an eye versus turn the other cheek was that turn the other cheek is for those who are ruled, is for those who are ruled by secular leaders and kings and so on. Whereas an eye for an eye is God's commandment to his rulers on earth, to those who are uh, put by God on earth to run the world, right? Because, you see, God doesn't intervene. We have free will. However, uh, it does seem that he is more than willing to appoint secular rulers over us to force us and compel us to do X, Y, and Z, which, of course, is all pure nonsense when you take just a moment to think about it, even from a theological standpoint. If God doesn't intervene, then the appointing of rulers over a human being, uh, like kings who have absolute power over them uh, by God, is not exactly appealing to their free will. And that is all the most errant and ridiculous nonsense, and brutal nonsense, if I say to you, I'm going to lock you in my basement, and I'm going to push food under the door, and you're just going to eat what I give you, and then I say, but I'm leaving you perfectly free to eat whatever food you like, then people would understand that I would be rather insane and hypocritical. Uh, yet, of course, in the realm of God, uh, all of this stuff passes with barely, barely a ripple uh, through the, quote, minds of the believers. But there's an important truth about the success of Christianity locked up in, in this duality, in the duality of submit to authority and also in fight, fight, fight. And Jesus, of course, pulls this trick uh, quite a bit. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, and then he says, I have come to divide family against family member against family member, and I have come not to bring peace, but to bring the sword, and you should sell your clothing, and you should uh, buy a sword so that you can join me, and there's this heavy martial element to Jesus' uh, preachings. And these are very hard to understand if it's not, if, if you're sort of not processing, if you're processing it like it's a religion or anything, then of course it's impossible to understand, other than making up nonsense like God appoints rulers with absolute power over you, but then you're totally responsible for what happens, right? <laughs> oh man, they just kill me, these people. But if you look at it as a transitional uh, cult, then it's a little easier to understand how it is that these constantly conflicting statements are there in the Bible. A growing cult, or a cult that may have some chance of surviving and flourishing, as Christianity did, it needs two uh, things. It needs two things. A cult needs two things in order to flourish. The first thing that I'm talking about sort of in the ancient world, the first thing that it needs, of course, are followers. But the second thing that it needs is forbearance from the rulers, or tolerance at least from the rulers, with any luck enthusiasm from the rulers. But it very much needs tolerance from the rulers. A cult doesn't get very far if it preaches things like slavery is an abomination, 
all slaves should rise up and free themselves from their masters through whatever means possible and all masters in order to gain access to heaven must free their slaves the domination of women is an abomination and uh, all women who are so oppressed should uh, you know, recognize that their oppression is a sin and work to free themselves in whatever manner they can and so on and so on and so forth if a cult was preaching that, and there may have been cults preaching exactly that in the ancient world, but the only thing that we find is perhaps a little dried blood between the cobblestones of those daring moral philosophers who might put forward such heretical notions. And they would have been killed by the religious people, and they would have been killed by the state representatives. So if you preach real and true and common equality, of, uh, if you preach property rights, if you preach... Uh, the evils of slavery and the evils of the subjugation of women, and heaven forbid if you preach the rights of the child, then you're not going to get very far. You may gain some followers, because these things, I think, are all morally good. But the problem is that if you go around preaching that slaves should overthrow their masters, you're not going to get very far um, when you have a slave-based economy all around you and quite a large number of masters who uh, have invested quite a lot of money and time and whip energy effort into their slaves, um, not, not really going to do so well. So, if you preach that slavery is an abomination and slaves should be free, you will definitely appeal to the slaves, but you will be uh, uh, killed uh, off by the masters. Thrown to the lions, as it were. Now, if, on the other hand, so, sorry, that will give you followers, but you won't get to survive very long, and thus your ideas will, uh, will, uh, will be as the, uh, as the dew in a, in a hot sun. <laughs> they will simply evaporate and vanish from the passage of history. Now, on the other hand, if you create a cult that is solely focused upon the rulers, then, of course, they will accept that as a cult that furthers their own interests, but you won't gain that many followers. It's kind of tough to appeal to rulers through at the top and say, I can save you because the ruler's going to look up from his orgy and his feast of peeled grapes and say, from what? What do I got to be saved from? I'm doing great, thanks. I don't know why all rulers seem to come from New Jersey by way of London, <laughs> but there it is. So, the most successful ideologies, the most successful cults, are those that appeal to the slaves and also appeal to the rulers. But since the rulers and the slaves have such diametrically opposite goals, the slaves to be free and the rulers to subjugate the slaves, it's not the most logical thing to produce a system of thought that appeals to both sides of the uh, divide. In other words, everyone hates a philosopher, but it's possible to twist a religion into such a convoluted pretzel of self-serving and other-justifying, quote, logic that it appeals to everyone that the more violent a society is, the more that uh, it prefers religion. 
the more violent and hierarchical and the more the imbalance is between those with power and those they rule, in the modern instance between the, um, the, uh, the rulers uh, of the state and those who, pay, who are forced to pay taxes, the greater the divide. Pardon me. <coughs> Ooh, are we going to have three? Ooh, I think we are. Pardon me. See, you just, you just don't see that on the view, do you? But um, the more, uh, the, the greater the disparity of equality within a society, the more that religion tends to flourish, and whether that religion is overtly um, a, a god worship, such as is in Christianity or Islam or whatever, or whether that religion is simply the worship of the, the common good through the state and so on, uh, doesn't really matter. The innate contradictions are, similar, are common to both, and the propaganda of the, uh, the, the culture, the, the, um, the community, the common good, the people, the country, the state, the patriotic side of things, uh, is just as irrational and twisted in its logic as the worship of uh, uh, batter my heart, three-personed God, as John Dunn put it, as the uh, three-in-one. Uh, crude oil of uh, uh, of uh, Christian religion. So, how do you appeal to the slaves? Well, you appeal to the slaves by telling them that slavery is a virtue. Most human beings, when given the choice to either A, risk life and limb and fight to free themselves, or B, slip into a nice, cozy justification for doing exactly what they were doing before, we'll choose B. And that's not because human beings are cowardly or bad or even irrational. It's because the genes that would cause someone to choose A or would make somebody more likely to choose A eh, kind of got weeded out of the process of natural selection because those people would tend to get killed and usually before the age of reproduction. If you look at the Old Testament and you see the kinds of brutalities that are regularly enjoined against disobedient children, uh, basically kill them, then it's fairly clear to understand that where we come from is not some noble savage Rousseauian paradise of uh, everybody uh, sitting around uh, chatting and having a great time, but rather uh, a top-down hierarchical brutalization of the children in order to maintain the status of the tribes and the tribal leader then it's pretty clear to understand that the gene for bucking the system is pretty rare and it's not something that we can blame people for not possessing. It's simply weeded, uh, weeded out. But people still, uh, as I was talking about in the call-in show yesterday, people really don't want to feel that they are subjugated and humiliated by a mere mortal because then their sort of pride rouses itself. The, uh, the beta males and the zeta males would much rather think that they are obeying a man-god that they simply could never compete with or contest with or that they are obeying the will of God or Zeus or the social good or whatever. But the average male and female would rather believe that they are submitting themselves not to a mere average mortal, which would be humiliating, but they, they are submitting themselves to some monstrous greater good, to some god, some democratic ideals, some good of the society, and so on. They need to recast their submission as virtue. That is a very basic human hunger. And the leaders very much want those they rule over to equate submission to their, their will, the leader's will, with submission to virtue. Human beings are moral-based life forms. 
and everything that we do requires a moral justification. I mean, if human beings could come up with the breathing is virtuous and have it stick, then they would. But people will twist almost anything into a virtue. It is the Stockholm Syndrome. If I am enslaved, uh, I am going to feel the great temptation to love my uh, masters uh, because the alternative is uh, simply to feel grinding and ugly humiliation day after day, which would really lead, lead someone to suicide, thus take them out of the gene pool. So the reaction formation of loving those who brutalize you is something that keeps people alive and gets them to reproductive state. Remember, <laughs> nature doesn't care whether you're happy or not, as long as you're banging someone who's fertile. Uh, nature doesn't care if you're doing that out of despair or if you're doing that out of love. Uh, that's not part of natural selection. Uh, certainly, it is probably mildly better to do it out of love so that you're around to take care of the child as you uh, grow up, uh, as the child grows up, but it's not essential. The sperm meeting the egg is the essential thing. Uh, everything else is sort of a nice-to-have byproduct. And so, not only does the evolutionary uh, demands of natural selection favor uh, compliance and obsequience, but uh, the... Um, and loving it, right, and, and being happy with it. Those slaves who rebelled, as you can see from uh, I'm Spartacus, uh, don't tend to do very well. Uh, those who buck the system don't tend to do very well. And so it gets selected out. Whether If, if you have either a natural bent towards or espouse a philosophy of uh, revolting against the leaders you survive neither in a biological nor in, nor in a sort of thought world in a meme kind of sense. So uh, that's why religion tends to flourish in a violent society. Um, uh, and, so, you know, everyone, well, Scandinavian countries aren't that religious. Well, they are, and not to stretch the definition too far, but they're religious in the way that communism is religious. In that there's a worship of an ideology, there's an all-powerful, all um, uh, an all-powerful uh, leader, uh, there is a false consciousness, uh, which is that the evidence of your senses is not valid. Uh, there's lot, I mean, an enormous amount of religious uh, backgrounds to, uh, to these kinds of ideologies. Um, and, of course, Hitler was a Christian. Uh, Stalin was um, put through as a seminary and considered becoming a, a priest before finding that there was a effic more efficient way to brutalize people. What's that story, Alfred Hitchcock? Driving along some street in Europe uh, with someone, and he... Uh, glances out the window, Hitchcock, the famous maker of frightening films, glances out the window and says, Now that is the most frightening thing that I have ever seen. And uh, points, and he sees a priest uh, talking to a little boy, and he rolls down the window and says, Run, little boy! Run for your life! <laughs> Old Ellie. But... Um, Christianity in its dualism, and it's more than dualism, but we're just sort of talking about the major threads here. Christianity in its dualism as a splinter group faced a very great challenge, which was that it fomented dissent among families, but that dissent could not be fomented among classes. And I do believe that it's valid to talk about classes in a society where you have a top-down slave-owning hierarchy. So, you have, to, you have to ferment dissent within families for, and I know that I've talked about families, this is not sort of the time and place. I certainly say to people that you should get close to your families, but if your families are immoral and resist your growth and resist your expanding knowledge, then they are 
uh, not to be fought with, but to be broken with, to be discarded. Not, uh, not attacked, not uh, vengefully pursued, but uh, simply you cannot see them. I mean, that's, to me, that's not exactly sowing dissent. I actually want people to be closer to their families uh, and very much encourage that. But if that is impossible, there's no point torturing yourself. But uh, any sort of splinter movement has to create dissent within the families uh, simply by its very nature. It's going to appeal to some people and not to others. And through that uh, process, there's going to be dissent within society, and the rulers don't mind dissent within families. If they're fighting with each other, then they're not focusing on the real oppression that is occurring politically, which is the ruler's uh, uh, power over them. So infighting is perfectly fine for the rulers, but... Christianity had to have a message for the rulers as well, and that's where, that's where you get, I uphold every atom, every tittle of rules in the Old Testament, right? That was really for uh, the, um, the Jewish elders, and also for the, um, for the rulers, because, of course, uh, Judaism doesn't exactly counsel uh, revolt against rulers. It counsels, let's pray to God and have God smite them with X, Y, and Z. And rulers, frantically, uh, sorry, rulers basically are perfectly happy with that kind of nonsense. Like, yeah, y'all, y'all pray for the rain of frogs to hit my house. That's no problem. Just don't take up arms against me, and I'm happy. Right. So the fact that religions counsel the resentment of the ruled and channel it into praying for things which will never uh, occur to a god who isn't there, well, it keeps them busy, and it keeps them from actually trying to do something to change their state, and it keeps them alive and breeding. So the gene to a to want to do that is not exactly selected out of the pool. So, when we look at the um, uh, the issue of how you appeal to these two groups, well, to the rules, you preach a number of things. You preach the morality of subservience. So, and remember, uh, the Bible was never uh, written to be read by the slaves. The slaves couldn't read, and it really wasn't until um, Luther and company translated the Bible into the vernacular in the 15th century, the 16th century, that this all became... 15th century, sorry. That this all became possible, right? That people could actually read the Bible, and of course it went through all of the normal uh, cleaning up that you would expect when it was being translated into the vernacular, but... The Bible was, was uh, written down as an instruction manual for priests and was heavily guarded in terms of its contents from the masses. So the Bible would need to be full of a number of contradictory messages depending on who it's being targeted at. I mean, if you have a company that makes kitty cereal and Metamucil, you don't have one ad saying, hey, all this sugar's really going to help you be regular, kids. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. People would just be baffled. The kids would be kind of grossed out, and the adults, uh, the elderly, would feel condescended to. A big kiting character on a pot? Who knows, right? But if you are uh, appealing to different demographics, you have to have different messages. This is different music, different actors, different, different ad agencies, maybe. Uh, this is all quite natural. And if you're writing a manual towards advertising, you're going to include examples of how to advertise to children, and you're going to include examples of how to advertise to the elderly and how to advertise to everyone in between. But you're not going to... Uh, and then if people get the hold of this book, they'll say, well, this book's full of really contradictory messages. Well, of course, because it's a manual on how to communicate to a variety of different audiences all of the filthy falsehoods that you need to keep uh, social power uh, where it is. So the, the rulers 
both like the fact that you say they're put there by God, right? So ye old local king loves the fact that the Bible says that secular authorities are appointed by God and are representative of God on earth, because that makes it a whole lot easier to rule people. Now we have celebrities, but back then they had um, kings and queens and so on. The, um, the, uh, the, Ro the Roman leaders and all these kinds of groups. And so the rulers love that, because it's a lot easier to rule people if they think you're a god than if they think you're just some dude who bleeds when you stab him, right? So they love that stuff. The, those who are ruled love being told that submission to secular authority will gain them eternal paradise in heaven where they will be free and where they will be the rulers and the rulers will be the ruled even though they're appointed by God and everybody's going to change places and up is down and black is white. They love that kind of stuff because it takes away the responsibility for them for having to think about the humiliation of their position. So these two different kinds of rules are, I think, very, very important. So as Luther said, an eye for an eye is what God commands the secular rulers to do, to punish with violence those who disobey the secular laws, or in those, case, in those days there really was no such thing as secular laws because it was, uh, there was no separation of church and state. And so that's what the eye for the eye is, and that's what the wrath of God stuff is all for, and the beat up your kids and the rape your daughters and all this kind of stuff. That is what those rules are for. But the rules which enjoin uh, peacefulness and gentleness and submission and nonviolence, well, those are all preached towards the slaves, so that the slaves will stay slaves. And the slaves grab at this eagerly, uh, because for most slaves, the opportunity of freeing themselves from slavery was almost non-existent. And yet nobody wants to think that they're simply ground down by mere mortals for the rest of their lives. They would much rather think that they're pursuing or undergoing some sort of radical moral good that is going to gain them in a place in eternal heaven. So the cherry-picking that occurs within the Bible also allows the Bible to survive through changing moral times. So uh, the story of Jesus, the guy who beats up the money changers in the temple, and the guy who says, uh, I'm going to kill your children and drown the unbelievers, and you know this raging, psychotic, sociopathic Jesus character works really well for certain moral, or not so much moral, times in history. So that works perfectly and beautifully well for uh, a, uh, a raging sociopathic, let's go kill the Muslims crusader kind of uh, Christendom dictatorship. The dewy-eyed, uh, uh, hands-like-a-dove, uh, hippy-dippy Christian works better for an age where there are different moral standards. So it's the flexibility, right? Everybody knows that a gene that mutates tends to survive antibodies, and religion, by being so full, of every moral instruction, and they've just talked about the two major ones, but there are a near infinite series of other ones designed to appeal to women, to children, to, you know, this is a, it's an instruction manual on how to preach. It is not something that's supposed to be read and put together in a coherent manner. It's how to, it's stories that you can cherry pick to convince a wide variety of different people to obey your will and the will of the prince. It's really not about any kind of logical consistency. And once you understand it from that standpoint, then it's a lot easier, I think, to deal with the fact that uh, it's all just uh, made-up nonsense and that people will say whatever they can come up with that, that will stick in order to get you to submit to their uh, unjust authority. So thank you so much for listening. I'm going to... Uh, I'm actually going to finish early uh, today. It's um, not very busy. But it's very slow on the road, so I can safely stop. Thank you so much. I look forward to your donations. Uh, thank you for uh, all of the new board members. I look forward to uh, inviting more people to join in this philosophical conversation. 
and uh, have yourselves a great, great day.